If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of Acts. The fifth book there in the New Testament, Acts chapter 4. And we will be in verses 1 through 31. Your notes there in the bulletin say 1 through 22. I'm doing something that uh, the opposite of what I normally do. which Normally, as I say, I'm going to do less of a passage, but we're going to cover more because it feels like this is the the full context of this passage. So Acts uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 31 is where we will be. Have you ever, have you ever witnessed someone driving down the road with a mattress attached to the roof of their car? Have you ever seen this? Have you ever been that person? No one's willing to admit it? Okay. It always to me looks like a fairly precarious situation. You know, I just wonder how secure is this thing? If I'm behind them, I am going around as fast as I can or at least keeping a pretty good distance. Um, I just wonder, if a strong enough breeze came, would it pick this huge rectangle up and rip it off? Or you might even imagine, what if it was a smart car? Would it make that car go airborne? I don't know. Probably not. But add to that image of a mattress on the roof of a car a detail that I, I heard Jerry Seinfeld observe one time, which is that oftentimes when you see someone traveling with a mattress on top of their car with ropes around it, you also see the driver with their window down and their hand reaching out over the top and, and holding on to the mattress with their hand. The thought being that if, if the ropes come loose, they will be able to hold it with their their arm. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think that if the wind catches a hold of this mattress that this individual is going to be able to drive their car and also keep the mattress secured to their roof. The last time that we were in the book of Acts, we noted that in chapters 3 to 7, we're entering into this section of the book of Acts where opposition arises, some of it from without and some of it from from within the church. And here in Acts 4, it's the first stated opposition to the church, and it comes from religious authorities that want to silence and squelch the spread of the gospel. But we'll see that trying to stop the work of God is like trying to hold a mattress on the roof of your car with just the strength of your arm. It's pretty much impossible. In fact, I think what we find in this passage is is this truth, that no earthly power, no earthly power can stop the work of God or silence the proclamation of his gospel. No earthly power, not one, can stop the work of God or silence the proclamation of of his gospel. As we think about that big idea, I want us to see in part the foolishness of resisting God's work and the futility of engaging in a power struggle with God. How ridiculous is that? But I also want us to see what it looks like to surrender to God's power and to work with him for his glory. I want us to walk away with confidence, not only in the fact that no earthly power can stop the work of God or silence the proclamation of his gospel, but also with confidence that he can use us in this task. A confidence that would flow from the clarity about who we are called to be as proclaimers of God's good news. A confidence that's filled with excitement that for all of the ways that we might fail in life or all the ways that we might be confused about life or for all the ways that we feel like the small things that we do in Jesus' name are useless, we are in fact a part of a movement that cannot fail, 
Remember, the book of Acts is calling us to join in on the unstoppable, ever-expanding, spirit-empowered spread of the good word of Jesus to all people for the glory of God. And we are invited to join in on this task. We are invited to join in on this work, and we can join in with confidence knowing that nothing can stop it and nothing can silence it. We're going to read Acts 4, 1 to 31, a longer section, but let me give you the context. When we left the story, Peter had just healed a man, you remember, who had been lame from birth. He'd healed him in the name and in the power of Jesus. Not surprisingly, that kind of a miracle attracted a a large crowd, and Peter and John relocated to Solomon's porch, and Peter took the opportunity to proclaim the gospel. Peter took the opportunity to announce to this gathering that Jesus is the promised eternal servant. He's the holy and righteous one. He's the author of life. He's the risen son of God. And that everyone who will repent and believe in him will be cleansed from their sins. They will be filled and refreshed. They will be given the hope of eternal life. What a powerful message. He proclaims that. And then in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, we read, And as they, this is Peter and John, were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. 
For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plod in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. No earthly power can stop the work of God or silence the proclamation of the gospel. It's a large chunk of scripture. So just note a few timestamps that I think are helpful to see the flow of what's happening here just in the narrative. You see the first one in verse 1. It says, as they were speaking. So the events of verses 1 through 4 happened while Peter was speaking to the crowd. So it's it's while he's speaking and then probably just immediately following his sermon. Uh, the second phrase is in verse 5, on the next day. So this obviously is the day following the miracle of verses 1 through 10, this, the message of verses 11 through 26 in chapter 3, and then this arrest of, of, of verses 1 through 4 in chapter 4. So on this day, the, the next day, there's a trial of sorts that Peter and John are a part of. And then the third thing is in is verse 23, the third, third timestamp. It says, when they were released. So later on that day, after the trial, they were released. And these are the things that happened after that. So you kind of get a flow of what's happening um, during this time period. Having seen that, I want us to look at the story in verses 1 through 12. And then in verses 13 through 31, I want us to see a couple contrasting attitudes. The the contrasting attitudes and um worldview and whatever you might want to call it of the religious authorities and then of the the early church of the followers of Jesus. So just to give you kind of where we're going, there'll be four main thoughts to walk through the passage. Two of those are going to organize verses 1 through 12 as we sort of just see the narrative. And then in verses 13 through 31, two more contrasting these religious authorities with the, the followers of Jesus. So that's where we're heading. Uh, the f- first thing to note, though, is in verses 1 through 6, and this is what we see. We see the gathering of the council and the gathering of souls. There's the gathering of the council and the gathering of souls. We have some groups that are forming. The first consists of the priests, the captains of the temple, and the Sadducees. That's this gathering of the council. These, these three groups, um, they're rulers within the religious system there um, in the in Jerusalem, 
they had their differences, but what they had in common is that they wanted to keep peace in Jerusalem, especially amongst the Jewish people. Whether that was peace in the temple itself or peace just amongst the city and amongst the Roman authorities, the point is that they were not fans of uprisings. They were not fans of disruptions of any kind. They wanted to keep things going the way that they were, they had been going. They wanted to keep peace. And therefore, they are united in being annoyed with Peter and John. I love that that's what the word says. They were greatly annoyed. Um, Not only were Peter and John causing a disruption, but they were also proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now, the Sadducees in particular would have had problem with that. That's a doctrine that they despised. They didn't think that there was a resurrection. It was a and it was a teaching that all of them despised because it had to do with Jesus. Add to that the fact that they are unapproved men teaching unapproved doctrine in the temple itself. So they've got a lot of strikes against them, and therefore there's a lot of people that are mad at them, and they all just sort of unite together and say, we need to take these guys out of here. So this united group has enough power to come and to arrest Peter and John But the sun is setting, which means that at least an hour or two has gone past since the prayer meeting that they had been a part of, and and they taught after that time. So an hour or two has passed. It's evening, and the setting of the sun also meant, according to their law, that they could not hold a trial until the next day. And so they put Peter and John into prison and wait until the next day. And it's on the next day then in verse 5 that we see more people are being gathered together. There's a, a whole group now that's that's coming to participate in some sort of a, a trial. Um, it's the rulers, the elders, and the scribes. This is probably an official group of about 71 individuals. We're given some specific names of people that were there, including um, Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, who would have been his son-in-law. Interestingly, interestingly both of these had been a part of the trial of Jesus just two months prior. It's deja vu all over again for them. They thought they had sort of silenced Jesus by killing him, but here they have to deal with his followers who are still proclaiming his name and still teaching what he taught. They had killed Jesus, but no earthly power can stop the work of God or silence the proclamation of his gospel. In fact, it's interesting, between these two descriptions of the gathering opposition against the church, we read verse 4 that there's a very different gathering. Many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. The authorities were annoyed, but the crowd believed, so much so that 5,000 men alone believed the message that, that Peter preached. It's hard to say, is that it says there, it says the number of men came to about 5,000. Now, is that added to the 3,000 or is that a new 5,000? I would say probably a new 5,000, but it's hard to say exactly. But you would note that it's just the men. That is the emphasis there. The number of women and children who were believing in Jesus is not recorded. We could estimate as many as 15, 20,000 people at this point in Jerusalem are following Jesus if you include that. Either way, there's a a large group that is not annoyed with the disciples, but are believing what they are saying. I think we have to remember that 
public opposition really has no bearing on the spread of the message of Jesus. Often that's what we focus on. You know, the cameras of this world shine their light on councils that gather to say that the gospel is wrong or subversive. But God is building his church. And sometimes he does it slowly, and sometimes he does it exponentially, and often he does it silently. And he does it in the shadows, away from the lights of what we might see and know. But he's doing it, so don't be fooled by all the gathering councils. We can go back inside the council, though, and we see in verse 7 that Peter and John are set in their midst. This is probably some sort of semicircle of sorts, and Peter and John are put right there in the middle. Now, I would imagine that scenes of the trial of Jesus would have flashed in their minds at at this point. You might remember that Peter and John were the two guys who were in the court that witnessed at least part of Jesus's trials. Um, They saw those proceedings. In fact, that's where Peter had denied Christ, fearful of the authorities that were there. All that reveals that if they're gathering in this place, they understand the earthly power that these men have. They understand that they were a part, at least two in particular, if not more, they were a part of the death of Jesus, of sentencing him to death. They know that their lives could be on the line, which makes their boldness all the more amazing. We just assume that Peter is going to be bold, but think about what's stacked against him in this moment and what speaking out the way that he does represents. So we find here in verses 7 through 12, the proclamation that Jesus alone saves. In the first part, we saw these two gatherings, but here we see the proclamation that Jesus alone saves. Verses 7 through 12. We all have friends who, if a certain topic of conversation comes up, they cannot help but share everything that they know about that, right? Maybe it's their line of work or a hobby that they're passionate about or their political views. Um, Whatever it is, unless you want the conversation to go in that direction, then you want to avoid certain topics of conversation around that person. And we all have our own things too. Uh, My wife has heard more of my musings about coffee and its preparation than she would like to. Uh, But people ask questions, and so... You know, I have to tell them. Well, the rulers ask Peter a question that sets him up perfectly to talk about all he ever wanted to talk about, which is Jesus. May the same be true for us, I guess, right? So these are Peter's words in response to this question, by what power or by what name did you do this? They're Peter's words, but they are also the words of Jesus given to Peter by the Spirit, just as Jesus had promised he would do in Luke 21:12 and following he said there they will lay their hands on you and persecute you delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake this will be your opportunity to bear witness settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer for i will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict This is fulfilled right here in what Peter does. You see that his mouth is filled with wisdom from God such that the authorities say, who is this guy? So here he is empowered by the spirit, filled with the words of Jesus, and he begins 
to answer the question, I think, with a somewhat comical statement. He says, if we are on trial because of kindness done to a crippled man, then this is how we answer. It's sort of a, wait, you're arresting us because we healed someone? That's that's what you're upset about? Okay, here's what we have to say then. And then he proceeds to tell them exactly what he had told the crowd, that it was in the name, through the power, and for the glory of Jesus of Nazareth that this man was healed. For the third time in the book of Acts, he describes Jesus in this this way of saying, the one that you crucified who God raised from the dead. He keeps hammering that point. And again, think of the boldness in this atmosphere to say that the one you crucified and God raised from the dead. He reminds he reminds us of how central the crucifixion and the resurrection are to our faith. And then yet again, Peter turns to the Old Testament as he continually does. He points out the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And then he goes to the Old Testament to re- reinforce what he is teaching. And he references Psalm 118.22 this time, which we read as our call to worship. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is a text that Jesus himself cited, referring to himself. And so Peter confidently does the same thing. F.F. Bruce, a commentator, summarizes the meaning of this verse succinctly for us. He writes, both here and in later Christian use of this testimony, the builders are interpreted as the rulers of the Jewish nation who failed to acknowledge Jesus as the divinely sent deliverer. But the stone which they disregarded has now received from God the place of highest distinction. Jesus now sits enthroned at God's right hand. It's a powerful statement to add to to think about if Jesus is the cornerstone and you throw out the cornerstone, you destroy the building. So Peter is saying, he's proclaiming that rejection of Jesus destroys the heart of his faith and the heart of their faith, of the Jewish faith itself, because Jesus is the Messiah and the hope of the Messiah is the cornerstone of the hope that, that the people of Israel had. And his next statement then drives home this point. Jesus, he says, is the only name that God has given through whom men and women can be saved. What a powerful verse. Let's break down verse 12 just briefly, phrase by phrase here. There is salvation. There is hope. There, there, uh, not simply of physical healing like they had just witnessed, but there is hope of soul salvation, of forgiveness, of being made eternally right with God. There is salvation in no one else. There are not many ways to God. There is only one way. There is only one Savior. There is only one Lord and Christ. There is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven, no other human being, No other so-called God, no other religious leader has the power that Jesus has because no other name of any human being can save. Because no other human being has ever lived a sinless life and conquered death by dying and rising again. And no other human being is a human being and also God at the exact same time. Jesus is unique. There is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men. Jesus is not a path to God. He is a savior sent from God. He's given. God is on a rescue mission and Jesus has been given 
He's been sent to rescue dead and helpless sinners like you and me. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I think that must shows us that a decision must be made. Inaction brings eternal condemnation. But everyone who will call upon the name of Jesus, all who will confess their sins, all who will admit their need and their inability and believe in Jesus' power to save will be saved. This is the good news. It is clear, it's compassionate, and it's open to everyone. I would ask if you believe it. Do you believe that there is salvation in no one else? Do you believe there is no other name under heaven given by God by which we must be saved? If you look at Peter's response, and if you think that the council thought they could intimidate Peter, you realize that they were sorely mistaken. And yet, this bold proclamation is there, but the council is not moved. We start then to see this contrast that I want to bring out between the religious leaders and the men and the women of the early church. In verses 13 through 17, roughly, um, I think we see this truth. And this is speaking of the religious leaders, but also of all. The self-centered lust for power and approval is blinding. I think that's what's going on here. These religious leaders, they have a self-centered lust for power and approval. And the self-centered lust for power and approval is blinding. It keeps us from seeing the truth. If we have a desire for power, if we have a desire for the approval of others, it will blind us to the truth. So following this bold proclamation, we sort of turn in verse 13 and look at the faces of the councils of the council members, and Luke tells us what's going on in their minds. What stands out in the text to me is that all the things that we're, we're told that they saw and perceived and understood and recognized. So in verses 13 and 14, we see things like they saw the boldness of Peter and John. Usually people were intimidated by this council, but Peter and John are emboldened by the council. The threat makes them stand stronger. So they saw the boldness of Peter and John. Next, you, you note there in verse 13, they perceived that they were common, uneducated men. Here's these guys that have deep insight into scriptures, but they were not graduates of any of their rabbinical schools. And that's confusing. How do these guys understand what Psalm 118 is talking about? How are they speaking about these things so deeply? These are common, uneducated men. So they see that. Third, they recognize, you see there in verse um, verse 13 again, they recognized that they had been with Jesus. What a great phrase. They knew them to be disciples of Jesus. And while they lacked an education in some sort of officially sanctioned school, it was obvious that they had spent time in the school of Jesus. I think it's interesting. They were common, uneducated men, but they had been with Jesus. Those two thoughts don't negate the value of formal education in theology or ministry or whatever you might think, but they do remind us that an education of that kind pales in comparison to focused time learning at the feet of Jesus. 
The lack of a degree should never be a reason for us to resist boldly proclaiming Christ. In fact, not having a degree, not having deep learning of some kind, but being able to succinctly and boldly say the gospel may actually make your witness stronger. So I would say if your thought about not proclaiming the gospel to others is, well, I don't know enough. Behold, here are Peter and John, common, uneducated guys. They spoke the gospel with a thick Galilean accent, but they did it boldly and they did it clearly. Don't be afraid of what you don't know. If you've spent time with Jesus, then you know enough. So they see the boldness of Peter and John. They see they were common, uneducated men. They recognize they had been with Jesus. A fourth thing that they see is they see this guy who was healed standing next to them. He just won't go away, will he? I wonder if he had been arrested as well. I, I don't know. Or if he just kind of hung around until Peter and John showed back up. Because remember, he wouldn't stop clinging to them. And so they went to jail and maybe he just sort of waited around until they came out so that he could stay there with them. But there he is standing next to them. And in response to all of this, they said there's no denying that something amazing had happened. They don't even argue with their claim that Jesus rose from the dead. Verse 14 tells us they had nothing to say in opposition. They had nothing to say. They couldn't say anything. But they had to do something is what they thought. They couldn't deny that something had happened. So they tried to silence it. Rather than listen, rather than seek to understand all the things that they were seeing, they decided to plug their ears and close their eyes and then tried to plug the ears and close the eyes of everyone in the city. We got to keep this quiet. So it's interesting. It says they send them out. They send Peter and John and probably the, the man who had been healed. They send them out and they leave the council and then they start to talk to one another. And they say, what are we going to do? I mean, we can't deny that something has happened. Everyone in Jerusalem knows that something happened. But let's do this. Let's try to contain it. Okay, we'll we'll warn them. We'll just say, you can't talk in the name of Jesus anymore. That'll be good, right? So they call Peter and John back in. They give this warning. Don't talk in Jesus' name anymore. And they assume that's the end of it. They assume that like them, every man has a price. That their price is, their, their price is power. We want to hold on to our power and we're not going to let go of that power for anything. They would ignore the clear evidence of their eyes and their ears in order to keep the status quo. They would refuse to stake, take a stand on anything because it could lose the approval of the people around them. And it could lose their, they could lose their power if they, if they said they believed in Jesus. So they're not going to give that up. And they assume that the disciples have that same sort of price. Keeping control being like, these are powerful influences that pull people away from allegiance to Jesus. We don't want to allow Jesus to have control of our lives. We want to call the shots. We want to determine what we say and do. Or we don't want to be looked down on other people by, on, we don't want to be looked down on by others. We value the praises of men and women more than we value the praises of God. But the self-centered, that self-centered lust for power and approval will blind us to the truth. Because all we're thinking about is ourselves. It was blinding these leaders. And in their blindness, they assumed that Peter and John could be threatened into obedience. 
if we threaten their lives or if we threaten their comfort, that's a price they won't be willing to pay. But they had forgotten that these men had been with Jesus. And Jesus told them that this thing was going to happen. The disciples and all who follow Christ, as Russell read for us, understood that if they persecuted him, they will persecute us. So for these men, the self-centered lust for power and approval was blinding, but for the disciples, it was totally different. And for all Christians, this is what is true. This is the contrast of verses 18 through 31, that surrendering to the power and love of Jesus is joyfully freeing. It's not blinding, but surrendering to the power and love of Jesus brings freedom and joy. These guys were self-centered, thinking only about themselves and trying to build up their own power. But the disciples and all Christians, when we surrender to the power and love of Jesus, we have freedom and joy. Peter is later on going to write in Second Peter chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, exactly, I'm sorry, First Peter chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. He is going to write exactly what he and John model here. It's this. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. They're surrendering to the power and the love of Jesus. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. These leaders are driven by their desire, their, their desire for power and approval. And that desire tells them what to do. But when we trust in Christ, we have a new master. We are not in control anymore, which is kind of scary. But it's also joyfully freeing because Jesus gets to call the shots. When we surrender to the lordship of Jesus, we welcome and we welcome his love into our lives. Then we start to look like these believers. We've settled things. We have unshaking convictions. Here's what our unshaking, here's what we know for sure. If we have surrendered to the power and love of Jesus, here's what we know for sure that we see that they knew for sure. First, there is no question about who we want to please. There's no question in our minds about who we want to please. Who do we want to be happy with what we do? There's no question in our mind. The religious leaders were concerned about everyone else's opinion, but the disciples are concerned about one thing. When they answer, they say, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. What are they concerned about? What is right in the sight of God? They live before God's face, that quorum Deo that we've talked about, and they live before his face alone. They're not concerned with what Annas or Caiaphas or Alexander or anyone else thinks. They're concerned, what does God think? What does God want me to do? What would please God? And so they say, you guys can decide what's right. But we think that God doesn't want us to stop talking about Jesus. So that's what we're going to do. We've settled this already. What if we lived that way? What if we were always asking, what's right in the sight of God? Who should I listen to in this moment? What should I say? How should I act? What would God want me to do? If we are children of God, if we have surrendered to his power and love, then there's no question about who we want to please. We want to please God and God alone. And if we live in such a bold, consistent, clear way, 
then there will be those who praise God for the work that he does. And as we see in verses 21 through 22, there will be those who are completely confused about what we are doing, but also completely unable to do anything about it. If we've surrendered to the Lordship, the power, the love of Jesus, we are joyfully free. And there is no question about who we want to please. There's also no doubt about God's sovereign rule over all. There is no doubt in our minds about God's sovereign rule over everything. Peter and John return to their friends, we're told, and they tell them everything that the chief priests and the elders had said. They come back, they say, they threatened us. They say, we're not allowed to talk about Jesus anymore or do anything in his name. And we read in verse 24, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, and you think that maybe in that moment, they're going to say, oh no, God, we're scared now. What do we do? Should we keep talking in the name of Jesus? But rather they start by acknowledging God's control. They talk about his control over creation. He's the one who made all things. He holds all things together. The world is his. All earthly authority is borrowed authority because God is the creator. He is the authority overall. And if anyone has power, it's because God gave it to them. They talk about God's control over the future itself. They quote Psalm 2 and say that all of these things, including even the the rejection of Jesus as the anointed, that this was prophesied. And they, they know that he has power over all these earthly authorities. They talk about Herod and Pilate, and they remind themselves that God is in as much control over that council as he was in control over Herod and Pilate when they ordered the execution of Jesus. God can do whatever he wants, and he is in control of all things, and there is no earthly ruler that is in control, at least as in control as, as what they think. God brings good and he brings glory out of whatever happens. That knowledge of God's control over all of this leads us to a deep trust. It leads us to trust that no matter who appears to be in control or who says that they are in control, God is in control. He's the maker of heaven and earth. He's the author of the future. He's the king of all kings. He holds our lives in his hands and they're powerful and they're loving and that gives us freedom and joy. So there's um, there's no question about who we want to please if we've surrendered to God. There's no doubt about God's rule over all things. There's no lack of boldness in our proclaiming Jesus. If we've surrendered to God, there's no lack of boldness in the way that we proclaim Jesus. They come and they, they simply ask God in their prayer, to acknowledge the threats. Look upon their threats. Just know that they're there, God. We want you to know that they're there. But then they pray that they would continue to speak the word of the gospel with boldness, that they wouldn't shrink back in fear, but that they would stand firm and they would speak clearly. It's a prayer that God answers at the end in verse 31, just as the chapter began with bold proclamation. By Peter, it ends with bold proclamation of the gospel. By all, they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. God hears them, empowers them, and lets them do it. Because no earthly power can stop the work of God or silence the proclamation of his gospel. If we've submitted to Jesus, we should pray this way. 
We should ask God to, to, to help us to speak boldly no matter what opposition is. We're not asking God to preserve some sort of supposed earthly power that we hold. The church doesn't need a single soul in Washington for God's work to go forward. We don't need any Christian in any place of power in any part of the world for the gospel to spread. This kingdom has nothing to do with earthly power. Not one bit. All we need to know is that God knows about the opposition. That's all they ask. They don't even say, take it away. They just say, God, we want you to be aware of this opposition as you are because you're sovereign and help us to speak with boldness. Now, there is the prayer that we even referenced in the pastoral prayer. We want to live peaceful and quiet lives with all holiness and and godliness. But we'll also do whatever God tells us to do. And if we have surrendered to him, then there's no lack of boldness in our proclaiming Jesus. And finally, there's no shortage of strength for the task. There's no shortage of strength. God will give us the strength that we need. Verse 30 says, while you stretch out your hand to heal. We're going to preach with boldness while you, God, stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I think the key word there is while. They're focused on proclamation and they trust that God will heal and perform signs and wonders as he wishes, including granting repentance and doing the miraculous work of regeneration. So we preach the gospel and we let God do whatever else he wants. He, of course, is the author of salvation from beginning to end. He does the work of salvation. And he can choose to do miraculous works of power if he wants to push his gospel forward. I think we should feel free to pray like this, to pray for signs, to pray for signs of healing. Healing like this lame man was healed. Because if we're praying for it rightly, we're not praying for some sort of exaltation of this man. We're not praying for some sort of exaltation of the person who heals that man. We're praying for the exaltation of Jesus in the ingathering of souls because of these signs and wonders that God does. I think it's interesting. We know so much about this guy. He's 40 years old. He's been lame from birth. He's always taken to the beautiful gate. What's his name? We don't know his name. We don't know his name because it was never really about him. And Peter, when he stands up, he says, it's not about me. He wasn't healed in my name by my piety or by my power. He was healed through whose name? The name of Jesus. And if we would pray for signs and wonders, not so that our church or us or even the person that's healed or has something amazing happening so that they would be glorified, that's not what we're asking for. But if we would pray that God would do amazing and miraculous things so that the name of Jesus would be glorified and that thousands of people would come to know Christ, maybe that's a prayer that God would answer. It doesn't hurt to pray it. If our heart is the same, there will not be a shortage of the power of God for the task that God has called us to do. There's 10,000 more things we could say about this prayer. That's why I wanted to wait, but it feels like it fits this context. So let me try to summarize. The self-centered lust for power and approval is blinding. If we are focused on ourselves and our own power, And what people think of us, we will not seek after the truth and we will not follow Jesus in the way that we are called to. But if we will surrender to his power and love, we will be filled with a joy that frees us 
it frees us because there's no question about who we want to please with our life. There is no doubt that God is in control of everything that's happening around us. There, there is no lack in our boldness in proclaiming Jesus because we have surrendered to him as king. And there is no shortage of strength because he will give it to us by the power of his spirit. And then the place where we are gathered could be shaken and we could be filled with the Holy Spirit and proclaim the mighty works of God. We would proclaim that Jesus alone saves and there will be a gathering of souls, whether it's souls to be encouraged or whether it's souls that would come to salvation. I think that's what we long for. And if there's gathering of counsel, that's fine too, because we have settled in our minds that we are surrendered to the power and the love of Jesus. And we know that no earthly power can ever stop the work of God or silence the proclamation of his gospel.